tonight on Arena. Roland Bennett on his new novel, Jack, a Top Boy Story, and we review the new production of John B. Keane's Sive at the Getty Theatre. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The author of the novel Zugzwang, Havoc in its Third Year, and the catastrophist Ronan Bennett has enjoyed a parallel career as a screenwriter most recently with the crime drama Top Boy, which ran for five seasons from 2011 through until 2023. Top Boy focused on two male characters, drug gangsters, Duchesne and Sully, and the world they inhabit, the fictional London estate of Summerhouse. Now Ronan has followed this up with a new novel, Jack, a Top Boy Story, in which he gives the lead role to a young lesbian character from Top Boy itself. Delighted that Ronan Bennett joins me uh, uh, on the line this evening. I'm kind of wondering how to how to start into this, because in some ways there are huge parallels here, Ronan, with the people who have seen Top Boy will recognise many of the characters uh, who are present and and large aspects of the plot with what we get in Jack, a top boy story. Jack was a, a, a character in in the TV series it, itself. Maybe bring us into that world and where Jack fits into it. Okay, so as you say, it's set in the fictional uh, summer house estate in London um, and it's it's a, it, it is the world of of drug d- dealers, which will be familiar enough to many uh, viewers. But at the same time, what I've done uh, uh, with the show was not just to show what they did, but also to, also to show mm. what their lives were like behind the scenes. Because nobody is simply a drug dealer. You know, they are also brothers, fa- you know, fathers, sons, all the rest of it. So what I was interested in was creating a portrait of a community that skipped the sensational aspects and you know really tried to plunge the plunge the viewer and and the reader of the of the novel plunge them into the a world mm. that they think they know something about but really haven't seen from the inside before so that was always the ambition with Top yeah, Boy. And I suppose that even as I said the word gangsters in my introduction, I thought you probably won't like that word because <laughs> but in fact what you do here is you humanise very much because it's easy to use that term drug dealer and that brings up a whole raft of preconceptions perhaps in our minds. Yes. But when you talk about characters, you have to go beyond the preconceptions and, and beyond the, the, the kind of the easy the easy route through it. But I guess when you're dealing with a world like this, you have to do all of that without glamorising or running away from the awfulness of the situation and the awfulness of the things some of these characters do. And we show that. You yeah. know, we, we absolutely show that. Um, so, I mean, for me, I, so the way I started was that I, I started to talk to people who were involved in this world. This is going back 15 mm. years. I mean, this the series has been running since 2011. Yeah. And I was, um, you know, researching it before that. And probably like you just said, my image of a drug dealer or a gangster was, was you know, it was definitely secondhand. It was stuff that I'd seen or read, uh, you know, seen on television or in films. Um, but when I started to talk to them, and I, 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 first of all, they were young, mostly young men, 
between the ages of uh, 17, 18 to early 20s. And they weren't anywhere near as hard or tough as I'd imagined. I'm sure they were capable in certain mm. circumstances of doing terrible things, but they were mostly, uh, you know, they came from they came from generations of poverty, generations of discrimination, and lived in terrible, mostly terrible housing conditions, uh, had very few prospects. So it all, you know, I, that's, I, I mm. wanted to, 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 the to word. dig deep and yeah. get under, get into that world and get yeah. under their skin. In this new iteration, then, the novel that we have, Jack, a, a top boy story. Jack was a character in the television series played by Jasmine Johnson, absolutely magnetic on screen, it has to be said. And I think perhaps her physicalization and realization and emotional truthfulness in the portrayal of that character would kind of set you off in a new direction with the character, even as part of the series, of the television series. But here in the novel, you hand it over to her, over to her in a first-person narrative. What grabbed you about this character that you wanted to pursue? The story kind of from a different angle, I suppose you could argue. Well... The, the novel is really a synoptic gospel, in that it's telling the events that have already, the events that other somebody else has already mm. told, and but it's giving you those that those events from another point of view, from another character's point of view, adding details, focusing on things that the more familiar version of this story has um, left out. So that that's how I look on the book. When I decided to write it, I thought, well. You know which character do I really want to explore? And uh, Jack is really an outsider in a world of outsiders. She's black and lesbian, and and you know that's that's not common in that world. So I thought let let's let's go with an outsider in a world of outsiders. And obviously the challenge, well, there are many challenges in the writing of any character. You'd you'd got yourself through, the, I suppose, the challenge of writing a black work, working class person involved in uh, and in and around the drug business. You'd done that already in, in Top Boy. You added in the, the layer of the sexuality of the character in, in this one. Had you any qualms about exploring that point of view or do you have to just get past that as a writer? I deal with it quite lightly in the book. I, I think that would have made me uneasy. It would have made me very queasy to to explore it in more in, in any kind of detail. But what happened, I mean, the the origin of Jack it came about in, in a very strange way. I was in my house in Hackney one day. There was a knock on the door. I opened the door. It was a young woman fan of Top Boy. And she tracked me down. I don't know how she I don't know how she did it. And she said to me, and these are her words, she said to me, why are there no dykes in Top Boy? And I, I brought her into the house. We sat down. We had a coffee. I said to her, look, I'm already writing right on the edge of you know, my imaginative capacities, and I don't feel that I can go there. And she insisted. She said, you know, these lesbian women in this world do not get, represent, get represented on screen. And she convinced me to do it. Um, and so talking to her was very useful in getting into that voice and in, into that, uh, you know, that imaginative perspective. And then obviously I, I benefited greatly from 
Jasmine's point, uh, you know, her performance, mm. Jasmine Jobson, who plays Jack, as you say, she's magnetic on screen. And I felt by the time I sat down to write the novel, I felt I, I felt clear about who the character was. And I just wanted to dive deeper into her story. You think with te- with with long form television, you know, television that comes in at multiple seasons and uh, 10 episodes or eight episodes a season. You think that that gives you enough time to, you know, not just to hit the story beats one after the other. You've got time to explore mm. the characters and so on. But actually, there, there's probably, I don't know, 35 or 40 episodes of Top Boy. And I still don't feel that I did anything more than scratch the surface of the world that we together, I mean, myself, the people who advised me, the, the, the filmmakers, the actors, everybody in front of and behind the cameras that we created, um, I still felt there was a, a world there to explore. And you, where you live in Hackney, how, how, I suppose, how much do you see of what you portray on the screen and in this novel? How much of that do you see in, in the neighbourhoods around you? Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not a Wild West town, you know, for sure. Hackney, has, it's, it's cheek by jowl living in the sense that there are very well-to-do people living in nice houses and you turn a corner and suddenly you're in an area of incredible social deprivation. So people from the nice houses don't tend to go to those places. So in that sense, you've, you've, you probably wouldn't see very much of it. Mm. You hear on the news of a knife attack or a, occasionally a shooting. Um, you, see, uh, uh, you see drug deals being done on the street occasionally. You know, it's all very fast. It's all, mm. it's all very um, uh, hidden. Um, so you don't really see that much of it. What you do see is uh, is police discrimination, you, and that which has got a, a massive part. It plays a massive part in the in, in in the decision of of young men in particular to go on the road, as it's described, work on the road on the streets selling drugs, and you see poverty, and those are the two things that are most notable, I think, when you turn the corner. The other thing that I thought was was no- notable uh, it, within the the novel itself, there are references to, and this is true in the in the television series as well. There are references to the the Brixton uh, riots of you know, whatever a few decades back at this point in time. And um, to, to what extent are you looking at how that history, that perhaps unresolved history, is still there, bubbling away under the surface? Well, if you're referring to the riot in the last season, mm. um, actually, what what happened there was it was that I saw on social media video of something that had happened in uh, in Glasgow uh, with the uh, when the uh, immigration and police attempted to take away two 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 people, I think, from the uh, Indian subcontinent. Uh, put them in the vans and were preparing to drive away when the community came out and surrounded the vans and prevented them from moving, which we replicated in the first episode. And what I did then was, um, so that was a rare win for the community. Mm. The two men were released. That's a very, you know, it's a a well-known episode in Glasgow a couple of years ago. But then what I imagined was that uh, the tensions bubbling away in the estate in Summerhouse 
caused by uh, by that and by you know a whole history of discrimination that 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 it, it broke out exact it broke out into a riot exactly in the way that you're describing mm. thinking about Tottenham in uh, I think this is about 82 or 83 yeah. Tottenham and Brixton and you know that the tensions that are being stoked and still being stoked today um, and as the inequalities grow and the cost of living crisis continues to squeeze people, the tensions grow and they're not being resolved. Nobody is looking at them. Nobody in power, nobody with influence is looking at them or, or looking for ways to resolve them. Two things just as I finish. <laughs> I do want to mention the fact that Jack's mentor, by the way, is, the, is an older character, Jimmy the Indian, who introduces her to the game of chess and all about Zugzwang, which is, of course, the <laughs> title of your novel. Wondering if, you, if you're going to give Jack that to read at some point. But more interestingly, <laughs> perhaps... I did have the feeling, as, as in a way I didn't necessarily have at the end of the, of the television series, as the novel finished, I thought, there's more life, there's more in this story, in this point of view of Jack. There's more to come. Do you feel that, and would you like to see it in novel and or television form? Um, <laughs> so, uh, not only does he uh, talk to her about, does Jimmy the Indian talk to Jack about, about chess, he also... Uh, t- talks about um, uh, his experience in prison with Irish prisoners and what he learned from Irish prisoners. Mm. And Jack indeed is given a copy of Bernadette Devlin's uh, uh, book. And um, so there is an Irish element at play there. Um, will there be more life? Well, I got into trouble yesterday. I gave an interview to the BBC and I was asked about, was, was there more life in, in Jack? And I'll, I'll say what I said then, which is that we have been talking to Netflix about about that. Ne- apparently, I'm in deep trouble for saying that, but I don't really care. So oh. um, anyway. Well, there you go. So I, hope, I, I, hope, I hope that we'd be seeing more of Jack. Yeah, I'll leave you to swim your way out of the deep, the deep, the deep <laughs> troubles that you're in. And thanks for sharing that with us, Ronan. That's Ronan Bennett. And Jack, a top boy story. The novel is published by Canon Gate. The previous episodes of the previous five seasons or three seasons it is on Netflix and fast, all available on Netflix. And who knows if there will be some more in the years to come. Country music is a play by Simon Stevens, whose other works include the likes of punk rock on the shores of the wide world and the adaptation of the Olivier Antonio award-winning Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. It first premiered in 2004 at the Royal Court Theatre in London and now on its 20th anniversary, it will be making its Irish premiere at the Glass Mask Theatre in Dublin. Delighted to be joined now on the phone by Simon Stevens himself and here in studio with me, director of the show, Ross Gaynor, uh, who will talk to us about it. Let, let me come to you first, um, Simon, since you know these characters intimately and interestingly <coughs> interestingly enough, they age, or one of them in particular, well, they all age over the, over the period of the play. <laughs> so that kind of adds a, a, an interesting little <laughs> dynamic to this. I really got to show, when I was reading the script today and I looked at the list of characters and I saw Jamie Carris is 18, Matty Carris is 19, Emma Carris is 17. Uh, all right, okay, so we have a set of siblings here. But you set us off in a very different direction. In fact, we are looking at a story told over four decades with Matty as our, as our, our as Jamie, I beg your pardon, Jamie 
as our central character. Tell us about him and what yeah. it was you were exploring across those four decades with him. It's, uh, it's there's, there's kind of an irony about uh, returning to a story about a character who ages 20 years over the course of a play, given that I wrote the play 20 years yeah. ago. Um, I remember writing Jamie Karras when I was, uh, you know, 20 years ago, when I was a lot younger than he was at his, at his oldest. And now I'm like 50. Oh, we can't. We'll get him back down. The, the, the line has Paris gone down. is a prisoner. Yeah, we'll, we'll try that line again. There's something coming through there. I think he might have an interruption coming through his line. Let me talk to, to Ross here and we'll try to sort out that problem. Uh, Ross, um, tell us a little bit more then about Jamie um, and the Jamie we meet in that in the first seed, who's a young, wild fella, really, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a heartbreaking play in many ways because you have a very troubled, vulnerable young man at 18 who makes a ter- terrible, terrible decision by killing someone. And we jump 10 years forward and see the effect of those actions that, um, you know, he probably really wishes he could change. So then we see a 29-year-old man who's dealing with the repercussion of this. And then finally, a 39-year-old man who looks back on his life and he's missed 20 years of it due to his imprisonment. And it all stems from being that vulnerable, hurt, damaged young man that society let down. And we have plenty of those in Ireland at the yeah. moment, as as we know well, uh, all too well, with the recent riots and the recent shooting in Blanchardstown, and there are young men out there who act this way, yeah, and in difficult situations. Absolutely, I, I, we, I think we're okay with Simon. Um, Simon um, Ross, giving us a, a a good sense there of the the twenty year period and how the how the how the character of Jamie changes. There is that aspect to it. It did strike me. Yeah, it's set in and around very specific bridges and stuff are mentioned in terms of uh, British uh, and English geography. But it is a universal story that you were telling here. Was that in your mind at the time? I think when you're writing a story, I think you can't really try and make something universal. That 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 can just be an effect of hopefully trying to write with any kind of honesty. I've I've always and 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 continue twenty years later to to work from the assumption that when a story is told with specificity, that that will be where the universality comes. You know, as a as a reader myself or as a viewer of plays or films, you know, I love it when when I'm watching an Irish film or an American film or an Italian film and there's a street name that's specific or a bar or a cafe. Not because it's exotic and seems like it's from a different world, but it seems like it's something that I recognize from the world that I live in because of its actuality. So I'm glad it resonates in Ireland. I'm glad mm. it's a play which has lived in the US and it's it's been produced throughout Germany and, and Scandinavia. And I, it wasn't that I tried to do that. I yeah. just tried to tell Jamie's story as honestly as I could, I think. Well, it is often, writers will often say, the more specific you are in, in the telling of a story, the more <laughs> possibility there is that it will be, uh, it will have this that universal quality to it. Have you changed any of those details in any way, Ross, then, to, yeah. to kind of bring it closer to an Irish audience? Yeah, the, act, the actors will be using Irish accents, um, and, I mean, we haven't really touched the script, but there are a few small things that, that will be referenced differently that Simon very kindly gave us his permission to, yeah. <laughs> to do. Um, and... I I think I mean it, it would it would resonate here just as much if 
we did set it in England, but it's a, yeah. a easy transition yeah, for the audience just wanted to get to, their head to, around. Yeah, I, the character of Jamie has he 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 has the task because the ages that are written, that as I mentioned at the beginning of the script, are the ages in which those characters appear. The scenes mm. they are at that mm. age in that one scene that they are in. It's a quite a task for Jamie. Who have you got doing that, Ross? For we, us? we have John Cronin playing Jamie. He's the the captain of the ship on this one, and he's doing just absolutely extraordinary work. And we also have. Have Patty Maguire, Kira Ivy, and Callan Cummins as the rest of the cast. So really, an extraordinary cast for this, and it makes my job very easy when you have a cast that good. They just they just show up, and it's amazing already. But um, there has been a bit of work done as well. Yeah, I'll admit. And and uh, f- for you, in in terms of this, Simon, obviously a lot of lots of people will know the novel, The Curious Incident in the Dog of the Nighttime. This is an original script. Uh, was it a very diff- different prospect to adapt something like The Curious Incident, which obviously became such a huge success, not only in its novel form but in in that staged version of it. <laughs> Well, I didn't have to make up any characters or make up any story or any kind of action. So there's something kind of easier in that sense. My work on Curious Incident was just trying to celebrate the theatricality of of the possibilities of Mark Haddon's story. You know, and I kind of, I'd start, one of my main starting points for Curious Incident was having written plays like Country Music, which have a kind of brutality to them or, uh, or a, a kind of like adult energy to them. I wanted to write something that my kids could go and see. Um, so, you know, but I, I, I think, I think that what's interesting to me is that although the two plays are very, very different, you know, I mean, country music's a play about a criminal, a play about a killer, about a murderer and curious incidents, a play about a boy who's trying to find out who killed his neighbor's dog. There are things in common, you know, I mean, they're both plays about family. They're both plays, I think, in the end, country music, although it has this veneer of being about crime and about violence, it's kind of about love, really. It's about trying to be honest and failing. Uh, in both plays, I think that attempt to be honest and, fa- and, and the failure to, to deliver on that attempt, I think, is really resonant. And um, I think as writers, we return to our myths. We return to our themes. And I think I'm a writer who's always written about what it is to be mm. a parent what, what it is to, to have a parent, what it is when your parents let you down, what it is to leave home, and what it is to go back home. So they're, they're, there's a lot in common with both plays, I think. Yeah, and had you seen, Ross, had you seen The Curious Incident or uh, or did you come to Simon's work via this play? Uh, no, ne- ne- well, I have seen Curious Incident, but I wrote my thesis on Simon 10 years ago and Simon very, <laughs> <laughs> very kindly agreed to allow me to interview him uh, mm. in London back when I was... 20, uh, 21, and um, he gave me a great interview. He was very generous with his time. And then I went off to drama school and I became an actor and have done that for the last, you know, eight or nine years. And I got this opportunity to direct a play. And 10 years on, I thought, of course, it has to be a Simon Stevens play um, because he's always been my favourite writer. And he really, really shaped my understanding of what contemporary theatre can be and how dangerous and bold and frightening contemporary theatre can be. And I'd started with those early plays, country music, Motortown, I used a monologue from Seawall as my audition for drama school. He has um, his work has been a huge part of my life. So, with my first uh, directorial debut, it uh, it had to be one assignment. They say plays. write what you know. You decided to direct what you know. This is it. <laughs> you, you knew it. You knew it from that point of view. One of the things that struck me reading the script today, Simon, was 
how in, in, in some ways it's quite terse. The dialogue is quite terse or short. It's very economic. You don't, yeah. you don't, there are no big long speeches. There are a few speeches, yes. But essentially it's very short, crisp and terse dialogue which often has an awful lot more going on underneath it than is actually said on the page. I guess that's what a drama can do that a novel can't. I hope so. I mean, I think I think that's the space that you try and create. You you try and I always think theatre works best when it takes place not not in the mouth of the actors, or or but in in the space in between the stage and the audience. So the audience are interpreting. I think when you put an audience in a position where they're interpreting what's going on, they bring themselves to the drama. You know, they recognise themselves more fully. I think when when they're having to. Um, to rather than just receive something, to really, really interrogate and interpret. But you know, I I, I wrote the play after working with prisoners uh, for two years, mm. two or three years in prisons in England, uh, and I was always moved by this really con- the the contradiction between I was mainly working with male prisoners between men who often weren't kind of verbose. Uh, in an environment where saying too much could be dangerous, where where language uh, needed to be extraordinarily guarded, um, and the counterpoint and the contrast between that e- economy of language and just the huge, huge feelings going on under the surface of these men. And I wanted to try and find a language in which I could communicate that level of feeling um, through through words mm. that can sometimes feel like shards of ideas. I know, and I must say, the one speech that I refer to, and, and then I'll say goodbye to you, which is there's a speech between Matty and Jamie in the second scene in the play, I think it is, uh, where Matty is, is updating him on somebody who was in his life in the past. And it's, mm. it's as much about the pauses. He kind of gives a sentence and he waits. He gives another sentence and he waits for the yeah. reaction. So it, it, the silences, I guess, are as important as the, the words themselves. Uh, you'll be coming over to see it, Simon, I believe. Yeah, I can't wait. I've not been to Dublin for a few years. I'm really looking forward. It's my birthday next week and I'm coming over uh, two days after my birthday. I can't wait to be there. All right, you better have the birthday cake ready for that this one. So, it, Ross. Uh, candle Sa- in the pint. <laughs> Simon, thanks, thanks for being with us this evening. And Ross, thanks Absolute for coming. Pleasure. Thanks, Sean. That's Simon Stevens there on the line. Ross Gainer with me in studio, making his directorial debut with the Irish premiere of the play Country Music. It's at the Glass Mask Theatre from February the 6th through until March the 2nd. And you can find out full details on glassmasktheatre.com. Come. Lots of interesting events happening to celebrate our new national holiday, St Bridget's Day. It's not only here in our own country, but our embassies and cultural centres across the globe are getting on the bandwagon as well. One that sounds like a special evening is organised by the newly launched La Casa della Cultura Irlandese, who are planned to produce Irish culture all over Italy. The first launch event to celebrate St. Bridget will be held in the Pontificate Irish College. On Friday it will host an evening featuring Quivine McConfrey and artist Eve Parnell and the singer who is with me in studio this evening. She's Grammy shortlisted songwriter for Song of the Year for Thar Lum in 2021 and this year she was back on the shortlist for her debut album Where the Lights Glow. She is 
singer Victoria Johnson her company Jonathan Stanley is with us in studio this evening as well Victoria the, the album was released in May of 2023 Where the Lights Go shortlisted for the best pop vocal album of the year at the Grammys and that follows on as I said from the, the shortlisting of Art of Tarlum that's quite an accolade to come to two, two years in a row in, in some ways isn't it yeah thank you yeah um and just as an independent artist as well it just has felt a huge achievement for me mm. because I don't have a record label behind me I self-manage myself so yeah a big big achievement and you know in, in the same way as they talk about the Irish success at the Oscars and even just being in that initial category that you might be nominated for or you might get to Absolutely. you know to be at the the event for as a, as a nominee how important is that and how has it helped you you know in 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 that independent career of yours yeah, well, I suppose it's given me um, some opportunities. I think the Grammy Awards, as you said, it kind of has that Oscar feel to it. Um, so there is a kind of prestigious element aimed towards it. But for me, actually, I'm still out there <laughs> crafting every day, looking for, for the opportunities. Um, I work around the clock, mm. um, you know, and that's what you have to do as an independent artist. But luckily for me, I, I really like the music business end of things. Um, so that helps. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll talk a little bit about what specifically you're doing uh, for St. Bridget's Day. But let us listen to Tarlum, can we? Sure. Because I, I asked you, would you do that for me? And you kindly agreed. So let's, uh, let's have a listen to it. Tarlum. Tu hu ang 
Gloria Johnson there with her song Tar Lum and accompanying her there on the keyboard was Jonathan Stanley. It strikes me that the inspiration and the thoughts sometimes behind Tarlum will, will fit in precise, exactly into what you're doing for St. Bridget's Day. Just remind us of the kind of Celtic heritage and the fact that we have the, the Cúpla Fuckle in the middle, even in the title of it, the Tarlum. That Celtic and that Irish heritage are very important in that song. Absolutely, yeah. So for me, actually, the Irish language, I feel, is meant to be sung. It really lends itself mm. to melody. It's very melodic Um language I feel so we're really looking forward to performing this in Rome and yeah so it's going to be a really exciting event so Eve Parnell from NCAD she she qualified from NCAD she's founded this amazing Irish cultural centre in Rome and has invited us over through Culture Ireland to perform at this launch event and yeah I'm just really looking forward to being part of it so we're going to be showcasing some of these songs from my debut album but actually behind the scenes myself and Jonathan are working on a duo album funded by the Arts Council mm. of Ireland, which is super exciting. So we're going to be performing some, some music the over there. Yeah. And is there a specific song that takes on the St. Bridget Day aspect to it uh, in terms of what you'll be doing uh, as part of this trip? Well, I know that the poet is going to be focusing in on St. Bridget mm. and I'm going to be wearing a lovely guna Um <laughs> by an Irish fashion designer um, that showcased St. Bridget. But really, I suppose the connection with St. Bridget um, for us is just that we're celebrating her over there, but um, she wouldn't be directly influenced in terms of my music necessarily. Um, Tarlum doesn't have any connection with her, mm. unfortunately. Um, but yeah, we're just really looking forward to um, promoting our Irish heritage and culture over there. And and you're you're going to Rome for this. Uh, uh, on, you know, look, when you think of the Irish Cultural Centre in Paris, it's a specific building, it's a specific yes. place. Is the idea with this um, Rome, the event that ha- is happening uh, in La Casa della Cultura, Irlandese, is there a specific place or is this is the idea of this more that it's Italy-wide, not tied to one place? Yeah, so the event that we're performing at is the Irish Pontifical College in mm. Rome, but actually this is kind of a, a wall initiative, as in they, they wanted to spread across all of Italy, but also they're going to be doing some events here as well in Ireland. Um, so it's just very exciting. It's the, the launch of the whole initiative, which was founded during the pandemic and happened to all have to be online. They did Zooms um, connecting with Italy, mm. showcasing the arts, and now this is able to happen live. It's super. Going back then to Tarlum and those who did make it from shortlist to nominees. I mean, we're talking like people like Taylor Swift and the likes. When you, how much of that it depends on you know the machinery behind. You were this lone wolf in many ways, giving us the song, and to even to get into that arena is such a, a huge achievement. How much do you need something behind you to? to really bump it into the next level to get it in onto the, the, the nomination lists. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at the nominees, so the Grammys is actually taking place next week. And if you look at everybody that's nominated in the various car- uh, categories, they all have these massive record labels behind them. And actually when my album came out, it was in the independent charts category and it placed at number 17 Um 
due to album sales, which I was thrilled about because mm. when you looked at the top 20, you still had Adele and the Arctic Monkeys in the top 20 of the independent charts. Um, so <laughs> that says, that paints a picture, even though we know Adele's on one of the biggest labels, it still can come under independent. Um, yeah, and so. we, we know <laughs> that's not necessarily the case. Um, so yeah, I think in my category for best pop vocal album, I was up against the likes of Miley Cyrus and you're not really going to be able to compete with that. Well, musically, you might well be able to complete it. So don't be, don't be putting putting yourself down. And and you're saying that the other thing that you're going to perform uh, from, you're going to perform some of the duo, uh, the album from the duo stuff that you've been working on, uh, it, 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 as well. That the, the pair of you, Romulus and Rem, Remus, I think, are going to feature. Are they part of the the album, or are they part of the songs that you've chosen to sing uh, in Rome, suitably enough? Yeah, well, one of our upcoming songs is called "Silent Falls the Night." Um, mm. Basically, the album we're working on it really um, focuses on Irish heritage, culture, but also the fauna of Ireland and animals that have become extinct in Ireland, but also the kind of positive, hopeful stories of reintroducing wildlife to Ireland um, so that showcases across the album yeah so and then that connection though with the wolf um, in Rome as you said it, it's it's a good link between um, Irish heritage and Rome because obviously we know the, the last wolf was killed here in Ireland um, in I think it was 1876 um, so one of the songs we've written is kind of about that extinction, um, but also then looking to connect it with Rome and that story there. Well, listen, thanks a million to both of you for coming into us this evening. Uh, and the launch of the Irish Cultural Centre in Rome will take place on Friday, 6pm Rome time at the Pontifical Irish College via Della Santa Quattro is where you will find it in Rome if you're lucky enough to be there. Well, it's actually sold out. <laughs> oh, there you go. Don't, put, put away your, <laughs> don't book the flight then. Leave it be. Stay at but home. But isn't that amazing yeah, that it's it sold quite, out, you yeah, know, this launch event. So yeah. we were thrilled. Yeah. So, and why yeah. wouldn't you be? Victoria Johnson, Jonathan Stanley, thank you so much both for coming into us this evening. Now, a new playwright, our new version, production of the John B. Keane play Sive opened at the Gaiety Theatre last night. The play is the story of a young orphan girl who being sold to an older man in an arranged marriage in Kerry in the late 1950s. We had the show's director, Andrew Flynn, cast member Shadi Malone and Norma Sheehan on the show a few weeks back. And along with Shadi as Sive and Norma as Mina, the cast includes Fanula Flanagan, Dennis Conway, John Olhan and others. Chris O'Rourke went along to review it for us and he's with me in the studio now. It really is a, a classic of Irish theatre, this particular play, isn't it, Chris? You know, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's canonical at this point. And, and in, many, in many senses, it's slightly confusing because it's, as a play, it's fraught with problems. Um, and for a modern audience, particularly like the theme you said about being sold into marriage, um, children being born out of wedlock, it... it, it you know, these are themes that, when it came out in 1959, were hugely relevant, not so much now. And as as a female role model side, particularly against more modern mm. female role models, you, you'd look at it and say it shouldn't work. And yet, it's so much richer and bigger than the sum of its often clunky parts, if you like. And the whole thing comes together incredibly well in this production in many respects. Well, how, you talk about those clunky parts. What are the specifics of the story being told? Obviously, the young girl being married off to the older man, perhaps, yeah. uh, may seem like something from a previous time. Yeah. But what were the bits that, that or what were the aspects of the play that really struck you? How are we going to sell that 
to a, an audience in 2024? I, I think, you know, over the years, many different companies have tried to frame it in certain ways mm. as a social commentary, as a commentary on gender, as a commentary on the patriarchy or on rural life or poverty. Um, what Director Andrew Flynn seems to have done in here, and it, it was quite clever was he's really dispensed with most of that and just said we've got a really cracking good story here some really interesting characters let's let them loose and see what happens so in that respect you get a lot more energy uh, in terms of the interactions however there's other aspects to it that prove quite interesting so the casting of um, Shade Malone for example is Sive and mm. um, that raises some really really interesting uh, issues and raises some uh, representation for particularly mixed race children where you, the mother may have been white and the father may have been black as seems to be the case mm. in this production <laughs> yeah. and this is really um, it doesn't look out of place at all in terms of what the play was saying at the time so there's issues like that that kind of go okay we can use this to tell a really good story and, and, and to highlight without kind of labouring the theme but you're still left with some of the fundamental issues, the problems. So, for example, Cypher herself is essentially a device in her own play. Yeah. She's essentially a cipher. Um, it's the adults around her who are much more interesting and spend more time talking about her than she's quite often on stage. And she's asked to make these big leaps where we're kind of go, what were you doing that? Where'd that come from? Um, ah, but you, you see those problems in the play, do you? you rather see them in the, than you, anywhere you, else? Yes, exactly. They're, they're inherent in the play and any director and, and any actor playing Sive is going to have to try and negotiate them at some level. So how does Shadi Malone go about that? You know, um, she's, I suppose, TV, um, isn't it? Uh, Casualty is one of the... Yeah. Hope Street, they're the two, two dramas, yes, I she, think, that she, she's she, involved uh, in on television. She'd be very well known probably to a lot of people more from TV and, mm. and movie. Um, she, she, she's really interesting in that on one level, she, her... In terms of presence when she comes on the stage, she has that wonderful ethereal sense of youth and innocence and purity. And, you know, she looks really uh, vulnerable. Yeah. But there's a sense in which the production's overplays that hand a little. And she almost drifts into Disney Princess, almost too good to be true. And particularly given the conversations going on around them, as you said, you know, you've got Dennis Conway, Fanula Flanagan, uh, Norma Sheehan, and the, 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 the visceral dialogue yeah. in the way they're basically knocking sparks off each other there's a bit of a disconnect at one level so while she looks the part quite often some of the decisions in terms of her agency don't quite connect as well with um, the world she's living in yeah but I, I, so you do you think that she perhaps has more it, that the way she plays it she gives Saif more agency than perhaps Saif actually has I, I quite Actually, probably the opposite. I think she probably gives her less agency in the sense that she is a victim. And I think there's a sense in really to mm. highlight that sense of victimhood. Whereas for me personally, I think we might have got more if she had a bit more agency. All right. Let us look at uh, you say that the adults around her are possibly more important in this play because they are yes. the ones that are <coughs> manipulating her situation, and manipulating everything about her and treating her as an economic unit. Exactly. That's exactly. what they're doing here. Um, where do we where do we start? Fanula Flanagan as Nana. It, well, this is the thing with this production where I which I personally enjoyed in that when they're not so much a type, they're allowed to be characters, so they become 
they have this wonderful ambiguity. So quite often when you see Sive, the Nana character is is, is, is her guardian angel. Mm. Well, Flanagan is her guardian angel, but she's also as bitter as a lemon. She is nasty work, particularly with Mina. And who's Mina, the, who is, the aunt. The, this is the aunt who wants to sell her. Played by um, Norma and, Sheehan. Yeah, and Norma Sheehan does a marvellous job because there's a sense in which she can be just a, a comic villain. Mm. But what you get with this is you get a sense of a woman who could have been Sive, who is still young enough and attractive enough and has a, a taste for fine things, who is trapped in this life that maybe she made a wrong choice or she was compelled into too. So you you, you get a little more understanding of, of, of the where that nastiness is coming from. It's not necessarily from a mm. place of hate, but from a place of pain. So, you know, you, so you, you've got this going on. Yeah. And then, of course, you have Dennis Con- you know, Conway as the kind of belligerent bowsy. Yeah, Tom Sheen, Sean Rue, he's the, exactly, the, the, exactly. the matchmaker yeah. of the piece. And Patrick Ryan is um, the, the husband, Mike Lavin. He's, he's wonderful as well because there's a sense in which he's doing wrong by Sive, but he tries to forgive himself by trying to think he's doing right by keeping her... Yeah, partner away. So there's lovely dichotomies going on with all these characters. They don't just play stereotypical. Yeah, one pieces. one of the things when when Norma Sheehan was in when we were chatting to her and she she referred to Mina as a weapon. <laughs> that was the word she used to describe her. And I, I, as I was saying to her on the night, I suppose yes, you want that aspect to it, but you need to understand why she is a weapon so what uh, kind of what kind of explanation did we get and the way the, way, the, the heartbreak of the relationship between her and the husband that's often yeah. a thing that's played for laughs more than for the, the pathos of the situation it, it, it is you're right uh, that's a very good way of describing it because quite often it's not quite what she said but in some of the choices they made mm. so there's a scene where her and Sive go out to buy wedding clothes and Sive comes back in this gorgeous dress but so does she and it's just the way she carries herself and the way she suddenly feels herself to be um, an attractive woman for a moment that you get, oh, I'm seeing something here that I didn't see a few minutes ago when she was just throwing out, you know, water or arguing with Nana over the pipe. So you were getting these lovely little accents. And then there's a moment with the husband where she lets her hair down momentarily. And the way that whole scene is played, it's just very, yeah. very... And neat. do you see that tenderness, that potentially tender relationship that is destroyed by one could argue the world that they live in it wouldn't be an ideal tenderness but you definitely see another side to the relationship where there's a there's a connection there which it's it's awkward and they don't quite know what to do with it but you do get the sense of what he might have seen in this woman and why they're connected some some younger actors here too um, a couple of actors making their debut John Rice as Liam Scoob Larry Bow as Cartelon how did they fare? they did very well I think the young John Rice uh, he you know, as the lovelorn, heart of gold mm. guy who you know who, who loves the side, he did a terrific job. Uh, Larry Bow was really interesting because he had to sing some songs that were almost like meant to be impromptu on the spot. Yeah, but you also had Steve Wall making his TV. Yeah, debut. I, I, it's, it's, who has done lots of TV work, I think, he and has. screen work, obviously, and part of the band, the stunning. Yeah. It, it, any music involved in what he's doing here? Well, he he's not singing and he's not yeah. playing in it, but he yeah. gives a wonderfully solid performance. He looks very at ease on the stage. What's he playing? He's playing the. The Tinker Pats Bocock, who along with uh, Larry Bowes, Cartelon, mm. they come into the town, they try to help Sive um, and uh, escape, but 
let's just leave it at that. All right. Because some well, people won't have seen it. No, and you don't want to be spoiling the end on yeah. them. In terms of um, the look of it, the light and the setting design, are we quite definitely in that 1950s rural Ireland place? We are. We were very much. Um, it's uh, Mary Kearns. She has this sort of uh, angular set. Uh, where your focus is kind of the perspective is brought to the back and they have this wonderful layered background which can mm. be uh, it can look like the bog it can you know it's a great sense of distance created and um, Kieran Bagnum's lights very atmospheric you know you can get that kind of pitch black bog dark but something a little bit more sinister mm. but also a sense you know of the inside of the cottage does, does the fire with this constant plume of smoke um, the way it's lit you, you do feel yeah this yeah. is of the time finally then Andrew Flynn's uh, direction and overall is this is this a, is this a version of Sive that you think is, is an important one to see I I'm not so sure how can I put it it's definitely an enjoyable one to see mm. um, it's got its issues Every side is going to have its issues. You're going to come to some people are going to come with various expectations about what they feel it should or shouldn't have said. But if you're asking, um, is it a good side? Is it an enjoyable side? It's very, very much so. Um, I think there are some important things to it, but I think it's strength lies in the fact that Flynn saw some really strong characters, a really interesting story, and rather than maybe the issues, he just went with telling that and did it. You know, yeah, pretty well, I think. All right, that's Sive running at the Gaiety Theatre through until March the 16th. Full details can be found on gaitytheatre.ie. Kira Mary Alice Thompson, yes, CMAT is what most of, all, of us will refer to her as. Having a great January. Last Wednesday, she found out she was nominated for International Artist of the Year at the Brit Awards for 2024. In good company, global superstars like Taylor Swift, Olivia Rodrigo, Miley Cyrus, and Kylie vying for the prize alongside her. Those of it, that event will take place on Saturday the 2nd of March in London. It'll be broadcast on ITV. We will be rooting for CMAT, no question about that. Let's have a listen to a little bit of a track from her uh, recent album, Crazy Mad For Me, Where Are The Kids Tonight, featuring John Grant. Your kids tonight from the album Crazy Mad for me and that uh, CMAT featuring the voice of John Grant and congratulations to her on her nomination for the International Artist of the Year Award at the Brit Awards of this year. One more exciting thing I want to tell you about, one of our most exciting theatre companies in fact, Rough Magic, having a big birthday next weekend, founded 40 years ago during a very creative, during a very creative period in Irish independent theatre. Rough Magic has continued to produce award-winning shows and nurture new talent. The productions are two new to list among the highlights, I think would be Copenhagen, but improbable frequency, Solar Bones, Shakespeare in the Castle Yard at Kilkenny. The list goes on and on. There will be a series of events to mark the anniversary, headed up with a live arena rough magic special from the Project Art Centre on Friday next, February the 9th. Starring, among others, Booker Prize winning writer Anne Enright, Irish Times Theatre Award winners Owen Rowe and Eleanor Methvin, writer and performer Arthur Reardon, and many more. You can join us here on 
RTE Radio 1 for a, a right of a night of performance and chat. Or indeed, you can come along to the Arena Show or any of the other weekend events by going to projectartcentre.ie. Friday, February the 9th at the Project That Arena Special on Rough Magic at 40. But that is our lot for this Wednesday evening. Niall Fitzmaurice was the researcher. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme produced by Kay Sheehy. Back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio. Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you after the news.